This week on Teacher Talk, we are flipping our classrooms upside down. This is your host, Dr. John Brown. We hope you'll join us. The doctor is in. Give me one more chance, you'll be satisfied. Give me two more chances, you won't be denied. Welcome back to Teacher Talk. Thank you for coming. Uh, this is John Brown, your host, and my guest this week is Shannon Jackson. Shannon is a middle school math teacher in Winthrop, Massachusetts. We're going to talk about the flipped classroom. Now, flipped classroom has been around since just before I left teaching, which was in 2012. And I came to the university that year and started teaching a technology class. And when I did, I did some investigations about what are the things I wanna teach. And one of the things that I realized I didn't know anything about back then was this concept of turning the teaching model upside down so that the students do their homework in class and they get their lecture at home. And that was, that was the way it was described to me at the time. So I honestly never have tried flipping my classroom. So it, but I've been, and I've been trying to teach about it, but it's much more, much more competent, much more interesting to hear stories from people like you, Shannon, who have gone through the process of designing a curriculum that is centered on using some of the most important parts of flipped classrooms. So welcome to Teacher Talk, Shannon. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. Tell us, when you started teaching math, the very first teaching job you had, were you using a flipped classroom? So no, this is my first year using a flipped classroom model. This is my second full year teaching. Um, so last year we were teaching Bizarrely, we were teaching fully remote. We went to a hybrid approach. Then we had some students in, some kids stayed at home. So last year was all over the place. Um, but before that, I had done some permanent um, substituting positions, which I just used a traditional model when I taught those courses. So let me let me ask this. So was your experience teaching during COVID pandemic? what got you interested in using the flipped model? So definitely it made it easier to have the students have a foundation of understanding with technology, with that approach. But I feel like through a lot of my time with teaching through these different models, um, I've seen students need more time with their teacher and the flipped classroom approach definitely creates more of this time to work with students, to have more conversations, to have them be practicing and make those connections, as opposed to just standing at the front and giving that direct instruction, that lecture, where they're only picking up some of those pieces and they're not making the connections themselves. It's interesting while you were talking, I was thinking about when I was in eighth grade, you teach eighth grade, and when I was in eighth grade, and I had math. One of the, the things I was fortunate, there was no flipping, it was like the 1970s. So there was no, you, I, you couldn't make a video and, and give it to me to take home. But I had Mr. Joyce for math and I was not a, a great math student and he would do the traditional model and it would, it would be exactly like you were sort of describing the traditional model where he would give a lecture and then I was supposed to go home and practice the things that he talked about during his lecture. And he would demonstrate a few things too. I was lucky though, because I had eighth grade as my study hall and he was my study hall teacher. So every, um, what's eighth grade, eighth period. So eighth block or whatever of school. And we didn't have, we had a very static schedule. So eighth block was always the last block of the day. And I always had him for study hall. So I would go up to him at his desk and go, can I ask you some questions apologetically? Like I felt poor guy, I can't give him a break every day. I'm asking him to help me with my homework, but I, I would sit there and do my homework with him. So I was, I had the benefit that year, the eighth grade year, the year you're teaching, 
of basically doing what you're talking about. Because I had, I would, it was algebra, and I was, I would say, so I didn't understand this part, and he said, well, why don't you go try it first, and then, and he wasn't trying to just push me off. He was, he wanted me to figure out where I was having trouble. And I said, I already did. I tried it. And this is the part that I have a hard time with. And he said, okay, let me explain this to you. And he would walk me through it. And then I would go back to my seat and I would sit in the front row. I was such a little nerd. Then I'd try some other issue, some other problems. And he's like, how's it going? He would be sitting right there. And I was, I think it's going okay. And then I get into another problem. And I say, can I come over here and talk to you? And he's like, sure. And I go over to his desk and, and I pull up a chair and I say, okay, so right here, I don't understand this part. And he's like, well, like I said in class, and he'd explain it to me. And I'd say, but why? And he'd say, well, if you were going to apply this math, this is, and he explained it to me. And I was like, okay. And then I'd never do math homework at home. Never. Because I always did it there. And Am I wrong, Shannon? Is that similar? That's that's the kind of help that the flipped class flipped classroom gives students, right? That you're absolutely, getting- and and not just for you to be working directly with the teacher and having those conversations, but it's also giving the students more time to talk to each other about the material, and they're making connections together as well. Right. So, like my my son when he was little, before. And he does, he's not in a flipped classroom now either, but um, he's in a pre-calculus now. And he does it still now. He'll call his friends up. They're working on their calculus home or pre-calculus homework. And he's in high school now. And he'll call his friend up on his, on his cell phone and say, hey, are you having problems with number four or number five? And I forget what the issue here is. And I don't even know what, I don't even know how to di- simulate the discussion about calculus, but and then he's like, okay, I think I got it now. And he'd get off. Or sometimes he has his friend in like in in the corner of his screen. He's got his friend there and they're like they're they're looking at it. They're probably zooming. I don't know. It didn't look like Zoom. And they're they're talking about the homework. And that scene, although that's not they're not in the classroom, they're still using the technology, but they're getting that social learning piece of it, right? I'm gonna back up a little bit. And I'm gonna ask you to define for us. I try to define what flipped classroom means, but I want you to define for us what the flipped classroom looks like for your students. Okay, so I so for me, a flipped classroom by definition is exactly how you described it. The students are doing the videos at home that the teacher is creating, um, and then they have more time in the classroom to practice. So I partially use that model, but in a blended learning model, which is a little bit different. Um, It runs parallel to this idea. And it was developed by the Modern Classroom Project, um, which is a very interesting model, which I took a course for over the summer. um, And now I've used what I've learned to apply to my classroom this year. So in addition to having the flipped aspect where I'm creating all of the videos for my students. My entire course is also completely self-paced and all of my assignments are tiered into different levels of mastery or different levels of understanding. So in a day-to-day, the students would come on the first day, I unroll an entire unit all at once, And then they move at their own pace through the course, everything they have access to with assignments that are at different levels and they watch my videos. So in a classroom, some students are working on videos, some students are working on assignments and they're reaching different levels of mastery. So mine is slightly flipped classroom, but it kind of goes beyond that um, and really targets the student-centered learning. And every kid is reaching a level of mastery that they want to achieve or are ready to achieve. Um, And they also have access to those videos, but the videos allow me to have more time with each student. And it allows the students to move forward without me giving a lecture when they are ready for it. That's that. So your your classroom is it's an organized chaos every day. All the kids are doing different things, getting up and picking up new things. Some are on laptops, some are working on worksheets. It's great. And when they struggle, they're asking their peers that have mastered the content already for help, or they ask me for help and everything's just constantly in motion. It's chaotic, but it's fun. I I have so many questions for you right now. (laughs) 
why why did you do this like what what how did it occur to you to go about doing this to train for this and to start you know your earlier in your career to start this school year with a flipped classroom 2.0 which is flipped classroom married with mastery based learning that has self-paced lessons what why what what problem were you trying to solve so a, a couple of problems. So I'll give an example for describing why it would have worked really well for a student like me, but then it also can help a whole host of other students. So for someone like me, when I was in school, I was a high achiever. And I always moved through everything really fast and I always wanted more. But in a traditional model, I was kind of held back to whatever that middle was. I had to listen to whatever lecture the teacher decided was for that day, do the practice for that day, which was the same practice that was given to everyone else. So for a student like me in the classroom that I've, I've created, I would be able to move at that faster pace and hit. So there's three tiers of levels of assignments. I would be able to do all three tiers um, to fill in more of that time, but make bigger connections outside of necessarily just the standards for eighth grade. So for a student like me, it would have worked really well because I would have learned a lot more um, and been able to move at my own pace and not be held back by a student who's a little bit slower than someone like I was. But it's also on the other side of things, helping students who move at a slower pace because they only need to hit the standard and they don't need necessarily challenge problems that are above their level of understanding. They can still be meeting those standards, getting problems that are good for them and still watching those videos more than once. They don't have to listen to my lecture the one time I give it and that's it. They can go back and rewatch and relearn. And then another problem that it solves is absenteeism. In a traditional classroom, if a student is absent, they've missed the work. If they're absent for a couple days, that's really not good. Now they've missed an entire idea. But in my class, they have access to all the material ahead of time, all the lectures ahead of time, so they can actually access it when they're at home. And even once they come back, if they actually did nothing at all, they still can pick up where they left off. Wow. Wow. So that's, that's wow. That, that's a lot of work for the teacher, right? I mean, there's a lot of upfront work that would scare me off, I think, but but also there's the controlled chaos part of it too, which I would actually would be comfortable with because I'm fine with chaos, but that would scare other people off too. Like how, if you were to, if you were to try to convince a colleague that this is the way to go, how would you answer those questions? Like, wow, it seems like a lot of prep, Shannon. I'm not sure I want to do this. Um, so for someone like me, I created it from scratch because I didn't have anything. I think it's probably easier than people think to take their curriculum and do it this way because they already have all of the content and all of the practice. They would just need to decide how to tier it and then record the videos. And one of the things that modern classroom stresses is that the videos aren't high stakes. You want to keep them short and they need to be realistic and real to the person. So they don't have to be perfect. So I record five to 10 minute videos for each concept, new idea that I develop. So in an entire unit that would take me a month, I might only record like 14 lectures because I want the kids to do the work themselves. So I'm really not recording like a ton of stuff because I want them to do the practice and the videos are pretty short and I'm not recording them more than once. One and done. That's it. And as far as the organized chaos piece, if that's the piece that scares people, I find that giving the students the trust and giving them control makes them more responsible. So this is interesting. There's been a lot of talk lately about critical pedagogy, as in critical race theory, because critical pedagogy is really the father of critical race theory. Critical race, critical race theory, which is a very controversial, not shouldn't necessarily be, but controversial subject right now, is about decentralizing the power in any organization. But in a, for, for critical pedagogy, it'd be decentralizing the power of the teacher. And this seems like an equalizer for the classroom. We set up a, a fairly authoritarian example for students, all the way from pre-K 
through 12, when we're, no matter how student-centered we think we are, we have decided ahead of time what's going to happen. Students are mandatory, you know, participants. They have to show up for school. And we tend to force them to do a lot of things in, in the name of learning. But what you're doing here is you're not necessarily giving them freedom over the curriculum, but you're giving them a lot of freedom about how they use their time. And they also can move forward quickly. So you've eliminated the ceiling. There's no ceiling anymore. And you've also taken the floor and you've made the floor less of a, a liability. So people who just can't seem to get off the ground can go back and rewatch a video or they can get help when they would normally have to be listening to a lecture or they can get help from a student, a, another student, or they can skip a piece that because they're only going for the basic skills before they need to move on. So this is this is very interesting. I, I want to ask, have you had the experience or any experience so far yet this year? We were only, you know, three months, not even three months into the school year, but have you had a student yet who has responded poorly to this model? Yes, a yes and a kind of yes, but we work on it. So in the beginning, when students are getting used to it, one of the unexpected student types that I wasn't expecting was students who are not ready to hit all three standards because they just haven't made enough connections yet, but they want to get all the content done. So then they got held up in lessons trying to reach them as opposed to moving forward to fall within the time constraints. So that was a piece that I wasn't expecting. I wasn't expecting a student who wanted to achieve more, but couldn't necessarily within the time constraints of the unit. And then the other student type that I wasn't expecting was a student who should be hitting higher standards and was choosing or higher tiers of assignments, but chose to not so that they had more free time to do nothing and then make poor um, behavior decisions. So that was something that I was expecting. So now I am trying to build in the choice to choose for free time, but it has to come within a time constraint and then we have to get back to work. So the students are understanding more so now that they can choose that break and build that in. And some students really do need that break um, and they can choose where it goes between their assignments but then they need to be moving forward and getting more work done. They need to be making more connections. Interesting. Very good. So I, I imagine that this model would work well also in 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th grade and beyond. However, at what age, if any, maybe there isn't an age that's too young, but at what age are our children too young to learn this way, do you think? So definitely my expertise is middle school to high school. That's what I'm licensed for. And that's kind of like the cognitive development age that I'm more comfortable with. So I, I feel like that would definitely work for six or 12. The Modern Classroom Project does have people, educators from all age groups, all the way through elementary school that use their model. And there's lots of videos. They have a free program, a free training program that's online. That's excellent. I highly recommend watching them, but they have lots of teacher examples for every piece of designing their curriculum. They have videos of educators of all different grade levels of all different subjects that use them. It was developed by two high school math teachers, which is probably why I feel very comfortable with it, but they do have educators from all curriculums, from all age groups using their model. I'm trying to picture how this would work with other subjects. Have you thought about that? Um, I know that you, you live math, you live and breathe math and you, you, you're busy. So you're probably not thinking, of how do you, how do you do, teach foreign language, language using this? Or how do you teach you know, English language arts or social studies? But I'm, I'm wondering, and we'll probably, we'll hear from some of the, the callers who call in and, and, and have questions and, and, and probably have some, some thoughts about this what subjects might not work as well as math? What what grade levels might not work as well as eighth grade, which seems almost ideal for this? Like I'm trying to picture a second grader 
and how, how would a second grader respond to having to watch a video at home and then do the you, you'd say do the problems but it wouldn't it's not necessarily problems do the work you'd say practice the skills in school instead yeah absolutely i feel like math definitely is very standards based i kind of have a hard time thinking about math not in terms of standards i know you're not always the biggest fan of standards but math is very standards based so that's why i feel like this model fits very nicely with it but I can still see how it's used in other areas. Even if it's less standards-based, the students are still watching shorter videos, which I think is really the key there. Instruction is very short. I mean, it gives the, the kids more time to practice. You don't really need to give so much instruction because then the kids get bored and they forget what's going on and then their mind goes somewhere else. Um, so I feel like having those videos be really short, which ideally I feel like is what you would want in a traditional classroom anyway, yeah. is a short lesson um, and then have more time for the kids to practice. I do have a hard time picturing it in an elementary school because the kids, you know, to keep them organized, they are already all over the place to have them be moving in the classroom, getting their own technology and getting that set up and watching the videos as it would be in my class or in a traditional flipped classroom approach, would every student have access to technology to be able to watch it at home, especially at an elementary school age? I'm not so sure they would. Um, so I, I find that hard to picture. I know people do it, but definitely for the middle school and high school age, I feel like they're at the perfect developmentally ready level to start in my way, self-pacing their flipped classroom because they are starting to learn time management, goal setting. Those are what I'm actually teaching beyond just math. That's what I'm trying to teach even more so is those skills, which is why this fits great because this is getting them to practice those skills. Um, and we have those conversations about setting goals. What are we trying to accomplish today? What do we need to get done by the end of the week? How are we staying organized? How do we use our time efficiently? What people are good to sit around? What people might we want to try to not sit around if they're distracting us? Um, so it, it leads to a lot of interesting conversations outside of my content area into skills that I think are almost more important. Yeah, I mean, we, we assume because, because the institution of schooling is socially constructed. So we have our ideas about it and we think that they're facts, but they're not necessarily facts. So just because I have a hard time imagining a second grader in a flipped classroom, benefiting from the flipped classroom, you know, having control of their own learning doesn't mean it's not possible or even beneficial. It's just that I'm not used to that. So I don't picture it doesn't come that the, the imagination doesn't come easy to me because I know what my experience was and I know what other people's experience was. And I've never seen this before. It doesn't mean it wouldn't work. And ultimately we have been really teaching a sort of learned helplessness in our students K all the way through 12 for the history of, of education in the, in the United States. Even as we've moved away over the past 50 years, not very far away, but moved somewhat moved away from straight lectures and direct instruction and augmented it with other types of learning, cooperative learning, experiential learning, inquiry-based learning, small groups. We still, but the teacher still makes a lot of the decisions about what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, how long things are going to take, what we're doing today, what are we doing today? You know, how, controls the, basically the schedule, the agenda and the priorities. In this case, with the mastery based learning married to the flipped classroom, you're still choosing the priorities, but the agenda is now shared with them. They have control over when things get done, how fast they get done. And I mean, it's not just whether they get done or not. And, and that's what happens with, with students in a traditional model. They, are in control of whether they're going to comply with the agenda or not. <laughs> so if a student's got an authority issue, which is actually a normal thing to have when you're an adolescent, because you're pushing back, you're creating your own identity and you're pushing back against adults because you want to see how far you can go and where you 
start and where other people end. And so pushing back against rebelling against authority is a natural circumstance of, of growing up and being a teenager. And it's, you can, we can expect that from our students. This, this completely sidesteps that by just assuming that they can handle it on their own. Uh, and I'm guessing if we consider expectancy theory, that if you expect that they can do it on their own, that a lot of them probably do. A lot of them probably rise to the occasion and, and maybe even feel like you might have when you were in school, like it's about time somebody like gave me the green light to do some of this work on my own and maybe move forward, you know, move, move past, differentiate up for myself, as opposed to I'm bored. Can you give me something else to do? But you, instead you've laid out a path for them. Yep. They can move forward on their own. And, and for the kids with the authority issues, and I do have several students, I have um, a lot of students on IEPs that do struggle with authority. They do have bad days that they don't want to do anything. And we work through that, but then they don't miss anything because they're still where they were and they get the work done eventually. They're able to move through at their level. And because math is very much one of the subjects where you can miss a piece. So if you were absent for a week and you missed a skill, that's a prerequisite skill for another skill or people weren't paying attention or they were being resentful and, and passive aggressive. So they missed a, a skill, a level of accountability. Isn't like, you've got to go back and learn that. We've got to come after school. Instead it's, it's more of a, a level of self-regulation about, well, I know that this is, I know what the path looks like and I know how far I got to go back before I can come to the place that I want to be. One of the pieces I, I didn't, one of the pieces I didn't talk about is that all of my quizzes throughout the unit are um, mastery based. And so if you don't pass the mastery checkpoint quiz, you have to go back and relearn and redo the quiz. You physically cannot move forward through the unit unless you are mastering the content. So do you have a number of students who have fallen quite a bit far behind. I do. I have had some students fall behind and that was definitely happening when I first started. So now that we're in unit three, the students are a little more used to it. And I've started to implement more procedures for what to do when students fall behind. Um, so I'm really not letting students fall very far behind. If they're, we have a, a student tracker, a student pacer tracker in the class that's visually up on my board about what lesson they should be on. But if they're, you know, more than two lessons behind, they have to start coming after school with me um, because they're showing to me, they're proving to me that they can't get through the content at home for homework. So now they can continue to spend time with me and get their work done and make those connections. What's interesting is the accountability here isn't like an externally created kind of accountability. It's the lesson itself. So the lesson is what holds them accountable. Not they, we need to bring in this like punishment, you know, this consequence that represents the, it, it, it's that's supposed to externally motivate them. You know, this is, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't define this as intrinsic motivation. I'm sure it is for some students. I'm sure it is for some students who are like, like to have the freedom to do this work on their own. They appreciate the, the like a level of trust and that they can move forward at their own pace. But at the same time, it doesn't have the external punishments that are often unrelated to the curriculum entirely. Like, you know, you're gonna get, stay after school with me and get uh, a detention or whatever, or I'm going to call home. All of the all of the motivations for the teacher to have the student after school or to call home is to get the student specifically back on track in this very specific place in the curriculum. Not like Johnny's fallen behind in general. What are we going to do? It's like Johnny's on this mod of the of the program, and I I, I'm, I want to help him get to a place where he's moving beyond it and he understands the concepts in that mod i'm thinking about like as it modules i don't know if modern classroom is divided up into what they call modules but it must be divided up into sections like yeah i i just call it 
lessons. So it's a unit and my lessons are more like a module than a traditional lesson because they aren't necessarily correlating to a day like a traditional lesson would be because it's developed around a standard. So some kids may take part of a day to complete the lesson. Some kids might take two days to complete a lesson. It depends um, how comfortable they are with the standard and how long it takes them to master the standard. So, so Shannon, if you were to outline the three, or you could say four, greatest benefits of doing, uh, of creating a system that's this comp complex for you, but fairly simple for the students, what would those benefits be? I think that it creates more control for the student over both of their time, their pacing through it, as well as like their, their desire for, you know, whatever level mastery they want to achieve. Um, so it definitely gives them more control. I think the flipped classroom model creates more time for me as well to work with those students, to assess where their understanding is. It's, uh, you can get a good sense in a direct instruction model where the students are at by giving a lecture and asking questions, but you're really only getting feedback from, you know, whatever kid you ask the question from. But I'm creating more time to ask questions with each kid as opposed to losing time um, standing at the front of the room. Um, and I, I just feel like it, it puts less emphasis on that I'm the, the authoritarian person in control and the direct instruction I give is the law of the land in the class. It, it, it gives them more time to practice and make the connections. I think keeping the videos very short for the flipped classroom is key and letting them create the connections and letting them struggle and, and feel like, oh no, I'm not sure, I have to think I should ask a peer is really helpful. So I think there's a couple of different things in there that is uh, helpful for the students, for their own growth and for their own understanding. Interesting, the soft skill here that, that is unrelated to math that is can't I, I can't emphasize enough how this model moves that soft skill to the center of things is that students have to take responsibility for their own learning and in lots of cases where the teacher is in control or the teacher is the authority the student may subconsciously give over and actually if it's if it's a tradition in, in education and the students experience this tradition where the teacher's always in control, then the student grows up with the idea, develops with the idea socially and emotionally that the teacher is in charge and the teacher's in control of my learning. And, and I'm not responsible for it. The teacher is. And then somewhere in between middle school and high school, there become there, there are some, some lectures about res taking responsibility for yourself. There are some, some very direct, references to taking responsibility for yourself and becoming an adult but if this this hybrid of marrying modern classroom to a flipped model were started early in, in early grades and continued through to middle high school students would begin to assimilate the idea of their learning being belonging to them and the responsibility residing with them, the teacher ends up being a consultant, somebody that they can go to for help. So the teacher's job isn't to direct, but it's it's to guide instead. We often use the word facilitator, and the word you know facilitate comes from the word meaning like helping or making it making things easier. But in a way, this is kind of a a journey model of teaching people are going to sometimes have a day where they they make a lot of strides along their journey and some days they might go a little bit slower and some people may move much farther and faster than other people that started off with them but you you enter the experience of each one of these students as the teacher and the guide and can help each one of them as they move along 
My question is, the sense of community in the classroom must be very different because I'm picturing you don't have like class discussions and students aren't, you know, sitting there while you're talking and, and there, there aren't like you're calling on students in a, in a general way. So how do you manage to develop a sense of community, even though be, in the face of the fact that each one of these students is working very much on their own and on the skills? That's a really great question. That's definitely something that I'm still working to develop more of. But within my curriculum, I've developed especially a lot of games because I love games. Um, so the kids get to skills that they're at a common skill. And a lot of the games, I try to make them so that they need a partner and they need to play with someone else. So they're finding each other when they're at the same skills. And there's there's groups set up within my classroom where you're at. But also the students are looking to each other for guidance because there's there's at the end of the day only one of me. And there's a lot of students with a lot of questions as they're making progress through the material. So when students are reaching mastery, they're looking for students who are reaching, who have reached mastery of a skill, and they're going to other students as a guide as well, um, because they understand. And so there is still a sense of community, because at the end of the day, we're all trying to learn and make those connections. And I put a lot of emphasis on those conversations. And when I see students having those conversations, using vocabulary correctly and helping each other to meet that mastery, I put a big emphasis on supporting that and encouraging students to do that more. Um, and, and just through time, the students are learning that that's the way that they're gonna understand to hear from their peers. And so it's grown more and more as time has gone on which is really, really great to see. I mean, that that is, yeah, I wouldn't have expected that, but it, again, it, my concept of, of like middle school is, is my concept. It's what I experienced. It's my socially constructed, even my individually constructed idea of it. But it's, but we have an idea in America, in the United States in, in 2021, what middle school looks like. And that's where the social construction comes from. And it doesn't look like your classroom. And the teacher has to be in charge because the students are unruly. It's middle school. They're tough kids to deal with. You need like a whip in a chair. And, and students aren't, uh, they aren't, they're not in compliance. Compliance becomes less of an issue in your classroom. And, and community isn't centered around the teacher. Community is much more of a node-to-node -node network than it is like a, an assemblage of, of minors around a, a mentor, a sage on the stage. Uh, our, we have a call from Hannah, and she's got a question for you, um, Shannon. Hannah, uh, what, what are you thinking about? So I said, I asked, with the videos, do you give them problems while you're recording yourself, or do you have worksheets that go along so they do it afterwards, or do they come up with problems on their own? Like, how do they actually practice the work? So that's a great question. Um, so. All of my lessons, a lot of them start with a video. And one of my goals for myself next year is to put my videos, um, which I actually record in Zoom, very similar to this, to put those videos into something like an Ed Puzzle so I can ask questions throughout the video, which is something that I just haven't had time for this year. So while students are watching my videos, I create uh, my videos, I pre-make a Google slide deck, and then in my videos, I am annotating them. So the students have a printout, a PDF printout of the slide deck, and they are as part of their must-do level, which is the first tier um, of assignments. Part of their must-do work is to fill in the notes to stay engaged with those videos. And then after they have learned some of that content in that five to 10 minute video, in any given lesson to practice the skills, there might be a couple more must-do assignments. Should do would be the second tier, which starts to get them making more connections across curriculum. And then aspire to assignments, I generally reserve for projects that happen at the end of every couple of ideas and concepts that start to extend it outside of the eighth grade standard sphere. So those are like the three 
levels of assignments that I would give. And they come in any form. They might be worksheet practice. Sometimes they're games. Sometimes they're projects um, where they're either like making posters or other type things or content for a future student to watch. So really it comes in a variety of formats, just like any classroom would. I'm just taking those and tiering them into levels of mastery. So like really basic understanding of the standard, making connections to other standards, and then making connections outside of the standards. That's a good question. Hannah, thank you for asking it. I'm wondering what your your bosses, what the, the, the department chair and the principal, what they think about this, Shannon? Like maybe they don't even know what you're doing. I'm guessing they do. What do they think about this? Do they know about it? So they do. My principal is my advisor and he is a former math teacher. So he definitely has some insight into this. And he has been very, very interested in my process. He tried to flip his classroom years ago when he was a math teacher and he just didn't get the hang of it and gave up on it entirely. So he was very interested to see how I um, used it. And I think the flipped classroom approach is worthwhile, but I feel like this idea of blended learning takes it that extra step to give the students even more control over their learning. Yeah. When, when you, that's, a, that's a very interesting point. And that was something I w was, was thinking about before. If you talk about something, uh, if you talk about the flipped classroom all by itself in the traditional way, with the traditional definition, it's still quite teacher-centered. And even Shannon's 2.0 version of flipped classroom is not student-centered, but it's teacher, somewhat teacher-decentered, because you're still defining what the standards are. You're actually not defining them. The state of Massachusetts, for example, would be in this case. So you are, you have the goal you've set the goal that they learn these particular skills and you've given them the resources to do it. But when it's just flipped, it's still very much about you. But when you, when you, de, you decouple the curriculum from lessons, basically, where everybody's learning the same lesson on a given on a Monday or a Wednesday or whatever, you're you're setting some people free you're setting people like me when i was in eighth grade free because i needed to do it over again and i remember i had one math teacher that wasn't mr joyce like i meant i had before and i would ask so many questions during class that she get frustrated i'm like oh I, I, could you go over that again i don't understand what's what's this part and she's like let me let me talk to you later and i'm like so the rest of the class i'm like in the dark and then there's the later part, which is really the Mr. Joyce part. And by then I was like, oh, I've kind of missed the thread of it. Then there were students in there who some of them I, I knew who understood all of this. They understood everything she was talking about. And I think about like Vygotsky's zone of proximal development when, when I think about this. You had these students who already knew this and it was wasting their time. Or you had students like me who really in some ways weren't ready for it without a significant amount of help. And this is setting up a place in teaching for the ZPD, for the Zone of Proximal Development, because then you, you come in very regularly to rolling up your sleeves to look at what they're doing and, and be diagnostic about where their problems are. Give them some advice and then monitor them as they try again. This is, a, a, this is not the flipped classroom. This is most definitely a marriage of mastery-based learning, which lots of people have struggled with, and the flipped classroom, which also people have struggled with. You think you take two models that people struggle with, and you put them together and make twice as much struggle. But strangely enough, they complement each other. And for you anyway, maybe, you, maybe only Jan can do this. I don't no, know. people can do it. Watch the Modern Classroom Project. <laughs> Look it up. Take their free course. It's very she interesting. Doesn't have any stock in the company. I don't. <laughs> Haley Page from New, um, Rhode Island has a call into us. 
Haley, thanks for calling. And what's your question for Shannon? Um, so I work with kids much younger. Um, so maybe it's different on the elementary side versus middle school. But I found that a major complaint from parents is that they want to help their kids with math, but they don't understand the quote unquote new math. So they can't help them. And when you're discussing this, the first thing I thought of was, you know, this must really help parents. Have you found that this has kind of helped parents have more understanding and be able to assist their child better? I definitely think so. So my school uses Google Classroom. So everything, I, I, a big part of this is to have a super organized system. So I, every, I have everything on Google Classroom and it does help parents because they can go in with their student and look at the Google Classroom and they have access to everything. I have checklists for the students to be checking off their work that are in their binders. So everything is stored in their binders. So the parents know that they have access to their student's binder, which comes home with them every day. They can look at the checklist. They see what's being checked off. They can see what tier every single assignment is on. And if the parents wanted to, they could watch the videos as well with their students or watch it on their own to be understanding the concepts um, that are matching up to each of the work. So they definitely have access to all of the materials that I'm creating. And every single worksheet is in there as a PDF. Any online tools that I'm using that our assignments are also all in there as links so they can access all of those as well that, that that's a you know i hadn't thought of that haley until you asked but ultimately from what you're saying shannon is that the parents if they want to they can go to school with their kids right now they can't actually go in for the the guided part because then they'd be in they'd be in the classroom and they'd be underfoot but they can watch the videos they can they can hear the lectures they can watch it with their with their children and they can try out some problems and if you incorporated ed puzzle as you mentioned before that could give them a role in interacting with with the video itself which is which only i i i'm, I'm exhausted just thinking about how much work this is Shannon. tell me this isn't a ton of work because no it isn't it isn't like, oh you're talking about the 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 stack and the pdfs and now you're going to add questions into the video well i think Breaking it into manageable pieces is the first step. So you're already are creating all of your materials, your activities, your worksheets. Every teacher has to do that already. So that is already there. I'm just tiering. I'm making them, you know, what I would like to see at each of the tiers. I'm, I'm picking assignments or creating assignments that fit within the tiers that I would like to see. And then the videos are so short and I just record them in Zoom. One and done is really the key. They don't have to be super polished. They need to be you is the most important part. Flipped classrooms where you are not the one creating the videos do not work. It must be you. That's a big piece to the flipped classroom model. They need to hear the instruction from you and understand how the connections are being created. So this is, this is an important thing too. So in preparation for for having this, this discussion. I was reading a Brookings Institution report and there was a comparison of, in the report, of flipped classroom models where the teacher created the video and flipped classroom models where the, some, where, uh, some other entity created the, you know, a corporation or it was, and it was much more polished too. And interestingly enough, the, the efficacy of the two models varied widely and the rougher, as, as you're pointing out, the rougher, shorter, more authentic model showed better outcomes for the students, despite the fact that the other ones probably, they did numerous takes. But more importantly, as you keep you know, insisting, Shannon, and this is something I hadn't thought of, because I always went, the first time I, I pictured creating videos for my students that they would take home, I, I thought to myself, oh, that's gonna take a lot of editing and you're gonna try to get that right. And you're saying, no, you don't. No, it's you don't. One, one take, and done. And, and if you misspeak, you just, you know, you just say, wait a minute, let me start over. And you just- Yeah, you say, oh, I, I didn't mean to do that. Or here, I'm gonna erase that. Just like you would in your class, you right. make mistakes when you're giving the lecture, you erase things. You're like, oh, that, that was wrong. You make a joke like, it's exactly what I'm recording. It's the same experience, but now they get to do it at their own time. They're nice and short because I'm holding myself accountable with that time. And, and they're still getting that, that experience. So I, I really do enjoy that. I, I have one last question for you. 
So why don't we see more of what you're doing? Why don't we see more flipped classrooms? Why don't we see more mastery-based learning? There's a lot of competency, competency, well, a lot of conversation, not necessarily application, but about competency-based grading. And then you get some eye rolls there because that's, you know, people don't either don't understand what that is or their approach to that is not efficient. Is it, is it because of old people like me that we don't understand technology or is it because of what I was talking about before where we have a socially constructed idea about what education is and we're resistant to changing what we think works to entertain something brand new? Or is it something, I, why aren't people doing this more? I think part of it is people are afraid of the technology, but I think no excuses. I recorded in Zoom and we all just did a whole year of that. So we all learned the technology, so we can do it. I think partially it's the giving up control to not be seen as the yep. authoritarian figure in the classroom. We're afraid if you're not the one giving the instruction and having control over the classroom experience, then what will happen, which yeah. is a fear. It's a fear. It, it's not one I have. I don't think you have it, but I understand that fear that people might feel like they won't have that control. You won't be seen as the adults in the room, which, you know, a lot of people might look at me. I'm young. It's my second year. I'm very short. I'm shorter than most of my students. So I don't, necessarily look like the authoritarian figure. And I don't like to be an authoritarian figure. You know, I don't think that it always works. I have students who open up to me more emotionally because they feel like they can trust me um, and because they don't feel like I'm another adult teacher who is an authoritarian figure to them and is forcing them into conforming to every single thing and it's stressing them out. And sometimes they need someone that they can talk to about what they're going through because there's a lot of things going on in their lives that are outside of your 50 minute block with them. Shannon, it's been so great to have you on Teacher Talk. Thank you very much for coming. This has been truly an education for me. I, I'm, I'm learning so much from you. And um, I hope you'll come back on the show when we get a new perspective that I know that you're going to have something to say about at some point. But um, again, I want to thank you for coming and I want to thank everybody else for coming. This has been Teacher Talk and we'll see folks next Friday at 3.30. And in the meantime, have a great Thanksgiving. Teacher Talk comes to you from TLN, Teacher Leadership Network.